Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and return once again to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And Lord willing, we're going to conclude chapter 17 today in this section of this wonderful Gospel. The title of the message is the second advent. We have arrived at the last Sunday on the calendar. If this Sunday were a human being, it would be a middle child. Desperately trying to get some attention situated between Christmas and New Year's. Historically, it is the Sunday on the calendar that is the lowest church attendance. So I'm glad you're all here. It is right and appropriate, isn't it? And good that we come together having spent a month celebrating our Lord's first advent, born there in Bethlehem today to look forward to the second coming. Last Sunday morning, we looked at two Old Testament verses that adorn many of the Christmas cards that uh, Melissa and I received from all of you. And that reminds me to thank you on behalf of our entire staff and our families for the many, many expressions of love and kindness and generosity extended to us this past Christmas season. As always, we are overwhelmed by your kindness. But those two verses were from Isaiah chapter 9, written over 800 years before the birth of Jesus. It described what he would be like. Isaiah said, he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. That, we said, is a perfect description of Jesus. However, we also noted that the governments of the world are not yet subject to him. And he has yet to usher in this kingdom that is characterized by worldwide peace. So in terms of his rule and reign and his kingdom, there's an already aspect and a not yet element. Already Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people. We see this in verses 20 and 21 of this same chapter. Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees that you don't have to look for another sign because the kingdom is in your midst. You're looking at him, in other words. And uh, since that time, all those who receive Christ as their Lord and Savior has his, have his indwelling spirit. Jesus at his birth, ushered in his kingdom. John the Baptist came. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He didn't say the kingdom is coming. He said the kingdom is here. And Jesus preached the same message, that the kingdom is here. So beginning in verse 22 now, Jesus turns his attention to his second advent. Let's read Luke 17, 22 through 37. And he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of the part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. 
It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. In answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing of his word. Now, the danger of a text like this and a sermon like this is that we tend to become distracted from the main point by trying to fit everything into our individual eschatological systems. I say our systems. I'm not referring to Baptist systems of eschatology because there is no particularly unique Baptist eschatology system. Recently, our church, First Baptist Keller, endorsed the Baptist faith and message of 2000 as our official doctrinal statement. This is what our doctrinal statement says in Article 10 under an article titled Last Things. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to an appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. I think all of us can say amen to those words, right? We, we agree with all of that. Maybe we wish it said a little more, but at least we can be in agreement on, on those basic truths that are crystal clear in the Bible, that Jesus is coming again, isn't he? And that when he comes, he's coming to judge the living and dead. And ultimately, those who put their faith in Christ will reside with him forevermore. Those that reject him will be cast away from him in everlasting punishment. But, but as you can see, we Southern Baptists do not make a particular eschatological system a test of faith. I expect among us today, we have premillennial dispensationalists. We have amillennialists and likely some others. Uh, so in the time I have left today, I'm not going to try to sort it all out and correct everyone's errors <laughs> that, that don't exactly line up with what I believe about the chronology of the tribulation, the rapture and the eternal state. Not gonna do that today. That would take at least two Sundays to do. I think rather what I want us to do is try to grasp the main point that Jesus is making here at the end of chapter 17 to all who would listen in his day and all who would listen today. And the main point is this, that he's coming again and his second coming will be very, very different than his first. All evangelical Christians agreed on this and believe this. It's been taught for 2,000 years and our positions can change over time. 
I often tell the story a few years ago, Crystal College over in Dallas held an eschatology conference. And they brought in the four leading experts in each of the four most popular eschatological systems. And each of them was given two hours to try to convince the audience that their system was the correct one. And so at that time I had four seminary interns and I and they went over there. We sat very near the front row. We didn't miss a moment. And so there was a 10 minute break between each of the four speakers. One would speak for two hours, 10 minute break, another speaker for two hours, 10 minute break, so forth. So all day long, this went on with a short break for lunch. And I polled our interns after every presentation and their position changed every two hours. <laughs> there are some faithful men and women who hold differences of opinions uh, as far as eschatological systems, but, but all true believers believe what the Bible says is true, that Jesus is coming again. And his second coming will have some characteristics. The, the first is this, his second coming will be public and obvious. Look at verse 22. He says, and he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look here, look here, do not go away and do not run after them for just like the lightning when it flashes out of the part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Jesus' first coming as an infant was, was basically secret. He, he was born in obscurity in this little out of the way village called Bethlehem. There, there were no announcements in the local newspapers. Only a few humble shepherds were let in on it at first. There, there was no pomp. There was no earthly celebration. It was invisible. That is, the kingdom was in their midst, but in their hearts and minds. He ruled and reigned not from a royal palace, but in the hearts of his disciples. But his second coming will be very different. You won't have to wonder if the kingdom has come. Remember, that's what the Pharisees asked. Even though they were standing face to face with the king of glory, they said, when's the kingdom coming? Because it wasn't obvious to them. But when he comes again, even the lost will know it. He says, you will long to see it. One of the days of the son of man. Jesus' favorite designation for himself was the son of man. That's taken from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament where the Messiah is identified with humanity. And Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. He speaks there of a time of separation that even the Old Testament prophets had not anticipated. Remember we talked about those two mountain ranges? The first is the first coming. And as we get closer to that and stand on its peak, we can see there's a long valley in between the first advent and the second coming. And that's where we live in that valley called the church age. The Old Testament prophets didn't understand that even when they prophesied. He says, there's going to be a time of separation. And of course, Jesus predicted that, of course, in John chapter 14, where he gathered his disciples together right before his death and said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go away, I'll come again. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, how to get there. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, there's going to be a time of separation, but then there's also going to be a time of reunion. He says, I'm coming again, that where I am, you can be also. 
this is what Jesus says here in the 17th chapter of Luke. He, he says, you, you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, that is physically be with him, and, and you'll not see it. And they will say to you, look here, look here. Don't go away. Not right. That is, there are going to be people that say, Jesus has come back. He's returned. He says, don't you believe it? He says, when I come back, you won't have to wonder. He says, it's going to be like lightning, verse 24 says, that strikes over here and it lights up over here. That is, everyone will see it. It will be obvious. His second coming will be fast moving. Scripture says he'll come as a twinkling of an eye and it will be glorious. And you think, who would ever believe that Jesus has already returned? Well, almost every cult that I know about at its root claims that Jesus has returned in some manifestation. I had the occasion just two weeks ago to spend a couple of hours with a young man who follows another faith tradition that teaches that Jesus returned in the 1800s. And people didn't recognize him. And basically he taught that all religions lead to heaven. And that's a tragedy because Jesus said that would happen. People would say, he's here, he's here. He told his true disciples, don't be led astray. You don't believe that. For when I come back, it's going to be like lightning brightening up the sky. So when Jesus returns the second time, it won't be like the first time, not secret, not invisible, not private. It will be public and it will be obvious for all to see. And secondly, the second coming of Jesus will pre be preceded by rejection and warning. Look at verse 25. He says, but first, that is before my second coming, he, the son of man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He must suffer many things. Now that again is something that Many of Jesus' own disciples had not anticipated. In fact, when, when Jesus said it clearly that he was going to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested, that he'd be crucified. Do you remember what Peter, the spokesman for the 12, said? Not so, Lord. I've got a better plan. Here's what I'm going to do. If they try to take you, I'm going to pull out my sword and I'll fight. But Jesus had already declared that my kingdom's not of this world. That's why he rebuked Jesus, uh, Peter when he pulled out his sword. That's why he gave Peter the harshest rebuke anyone has ever received when he said, not so, Lord. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. That was not the words of God. These were the words of Satan. Trying to usurp the obvious mission of Christ. He must suffer many things. Why must Jesus have suffered? Because it was the will of the Father. The sufferings of Jesus should not have been surprised to anyone who knew the Old Testament because in Isaiah chapter 53, we have an entire chapter called the suffering servant passage, which says that by his stripes, we are healed, that he would be broken and bruised and rejected and killed and laid in a rich man's tomb. The most important verse, I think, to understand Isaiah 53 is that it pleased the father to crush him. That is, it was the will of God the Father before the foundation of the earth to redeem a people unto himself through the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus. That's why the scripture says he must suffer many things. All of the suffering and eventual death of Jesus 
We're all part of God's eternal redemptive plan to save you and me. So that tells us right away that Jesus is no man's victim, is he? We shouldn't think of Jesus as this poor, pathetic figure who was uh, misunderstood and had his rights violated. He came to suffer. He came to die. He must suffer many things. So not only was there a period of rejection, there's also a period of, of warning. So I think as we study passages like Luke 17, it's a warning to all of us to realize that God's judgment is coming. So we must be prepared. Jesus said when he came the first time, he described his mission statement as I came to seek and save the lost. But when he comes again, the scripture says his mission statement is to judge the living and the dead. And we have two examples of God's judgment and the warnings that preceded it in the Old Testament. And he gives them here beginning verse 26. He says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Surely all of you are familiar with the story of Noah. You remember that God created the heaven and the earth in Genesis 1 and he said it's good. He gave our first parents that one prohibition not to eat of the tree that was in the midst of the garden. They violated, they trespassed, they sinned. And because sin entered the world, sin's curse entered the world and as they began to multiply and have children and spread out over the earth, the scripture says that all men did day and night is to think up some new way to sin. The scripture says it got to a point that God regretted that he even made man. But there was one righteous man in all the earth. His name was Noah. God will not destroy the wicked with the righteous, the righteous with the wicked, will he? So he warned Noah and told him to build this ark. And he believed the Lord. And for a hundred years, he and his sons built the ark. And I take it all the time that that period that passed, that structure as it was being put together was a mute warning to that sinful world to repent. But they would not. They went along with life. That's what it means when it said they were drinking, marrying given in marriage. They were just living as people live with no regard for the coming cataclysmic judgment. And when we think of cataclysmic judgments in, in the Bible, we tend to think of a, a time where there was particularly sinful days on the earth. And, and they were. Too. There's no question that was a particularly sinful time on earth. But that is not the point that Jesus is making here. His point is that when judgment came, right up until the moment that first raindrop fell, people were going about life, business as usual. They were warned, but they ignored the warnings. And so he gives a second example, and, and that is of Lot. He says in verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. So when you're buying and selling, planting crops and preparing to build buildings, you're not thinking it's all going away anytime soon, are you? You think you're going to be around to harvest those crops and to habitate those buildings. They didn't believe that God was about to destroy them. And 
Yet he did. Remember Lot was Abram's nephew. Came with him out of Ur of the Chaldees and God had blessed Abraham and his flocks and so much so that they were too great for the land. Abraham and his humility and his generosity said to his nephew, you, you take your flocks. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. You, you have your choice of the land. The scripture has little note about Lot, even though he's called a righteous man in the Bible. It said he set his tent towards Sodom. I think there's a great warning to us there. Lot, even though God was blessing him, became enamored of the bright lights in the big city. And so we see Lot and he's facing his tents towards Sodom. And next thing you know, he's, he's moved to town. He's bought a house in the midst of it. And the next time we see him, not only is he a citizen of the city, he's a leader of the city. He sat in the gates with the other elders. And the city was so wicked that, that God was going to destroy it with fire and brimstone. He sent angels to get Lot and his family out of there and, and to warn him. And those people were so wicked, they try to perform immorality with, with these angels. They were struck blind and Lot and his family were to escape to the mountains. But remember his wife at the last moment, though she was told not to look back and turn to a pillar of salt. This is what he means when he says, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife was sort of like a lot of the football teams I cheer for. They snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory. She was a few steps away from salvation, and yet she could not let go of the here and now. And the scripture says we're not to be like that. It says those who would save their life must lose it, and those that would lose it must save it. That is, we have to forsake. We cannot serve God and money. We, we cannot have one foot in this world and one foot in heaven. That's why the scripture says to look to heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. To set your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. To persevere unto the end. Don't be like Lot's wife. This is a negative example. He's saying don't be like her. And so his second coming will be preceded by rejection, by the multitudes, warning to repent. But thirdly, it will ultimately be a time of separation and, and judgment. Verse 33, he says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. He, he is speaking of a time of worldwide judgment. And so he's saying, it will be nighttime, I take it, on one part of the earth, and it'll be daytime on the other, just as it is every day. Some will be in the bed, others will be working. The, the point is this, no one will escape his judgment except those who have believed on Christ. It will be a time of separation, of winnowing, the scripture says. Friends will be separated. Neighbors will be separated. Co-workers will be separated. Families will be separated. Husbands and wives and siblings. 
And, and their question is, Lord, how will we know it when it's happening? He says, you'll know it. And he uses a, a proverb that was popular in that day. We, we think when he says, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. I think the King James says, where the eagles. Well, we saw a buzzard in my neighborhood the other day. He doesn't look too much like an eagle. <laughs> Not very noble. He was picking through the trash. This is the point. This is what vultures, buzzards do. They circle above and invite their friends to say there's something dead here that we can have a free meal on. And when you see those buzzards, those vultures circling, you know something is dead and that's where death has come. And I think that the point is this, wherever there is spiritual death, that's where God's judgment can be found. But where there is spiritual life through the atonement applied through faith, there is no judgment. That's what Paul means when he says in Romans 9.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But rest assured, when Jesus comes, the, the opportunity of grace will be over. We, we talk about this valley we live in now between the first and second advent being called an age of grace. When Christ returns, the age of grace is over. There is no further opportunity for repentance. And so his warning is clear. Give up your life now. Turn it over to Jesus so that you will have eternity life, eternal life in the future. In conclusion, I'd like to say a couple things. As we think about these last days of Christmas and this celebration, haven't you found that very few people, your friends, your co-workers, your family members are put off or offended by the baby Jesus? When you set up a nativity scene, I think there, there are a few people that are so hardened in their sinfulness that get angry about a baby Jesus, but not many in our culture. Because the baby Jesus, let's face it, he's sweet, he's cuddly, and he's harmless. Friends, the, the point of the passage we're studying today is that when Jesus comes the second time, he will be anything but harmless. Last week, I went to see a dear saint in our church in his 90s. He has suffered from cancer for the last few years, and it has recently returned. And as he lay in the hospital bed, he saw me coming in. He, he said something. I didn't quite catch it. And I came closer and he said it again. And I laughed because he was quoting something I had said to him and others many times. He said, Brother Keith, we're all going to die. We don't know when. So we better be ready. The point that Matthew 17, 32 through 37 is not to help us win an eschatological debate. It's not to help us sort our charts and graphs in our study correctly, to get everything in the right sequence. The message is really rather simple. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, so we better be ready. Are you ready? Jesus were to come in 2020, would, would you be ready? Say, Pastor, I don't know. How do I know if I'm ready? Well, 
I think there's a passage in the Scripture that tells us it's a pretty good litmus test for whether or not you're ready for the second coming. It's in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, of all places. Let's turn there, can we? This is, of course, the, the second letter that, that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. And um, Timothy, as you know, needed a lot of encouragement. Paul gave it to him. As Paul came near to the end of his life, he was passing that baton of leadership, that mantle, as Elijah passed it to Elisha in the Old Testament. Paul was passing it to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, we read these words of the Apostle Paul. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now hear this. See, Paul was about to die. He had anticipated that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. But now as an older man, it's become clear that he's going to die before Jesus returns. But he wasn't fretting about that as he told the church at Thessalonica that those that are dead will rise first and those that remain will be caught up in the air and there we will be with the Lord forevermore. He wasn't worried about that. But he says this after the semicolon, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. His appearing is his second coming. And Paul says, here's how I know I'm ready for either my death or his coming because when I think about it, I love it. I rejoice at it. And so if you want to know if you're ready for the Lord's second coming, if it were to happen in the coming year, are you a person who looks forward to it with joy or with a sense of dread? I think there's a couple of reasons why we might dread the second coming of the Lord rather than loving it. One is we can be a true Christian but our life is not in order. My wife and I, uh, a month or two ago, moved our family to a new home. And it's much more conducive to hospitality, the way the floor plan is. And so we've determined to, to be more hospitable in the year ahead. And so we had our first dinner guest over a few weeks ago. And of course, we did what you do when you anticipate visitors, you clean the house all day. And once it was ready, still a couple hours before our guests were arrived, but we couldn't wait for them to get there because when you have four kids, that state of being clean only lasts so long. <laughs> but our kids were looking out the window, peeping through the peephole, and when they saw them drive up the driveway, they're here. They looked forward to it with joy and, and anticipation because things were in order. But if your life's not in order, there's a sense of dread that at any moment the doorbell could ring. And friends, if you're living in sin here today, even if you're a believer, you might not be looking forward with great anticipation to the Lord's coming. But you don't have to fear that. What does he say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, not just to forgive our sins, but to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Ask him to put your life in order to give you victory over habitual sin 
in the year ahead so that you can say with Paul, I'm ready if he were to come today. But another reason why some people don't love the second coming or the appearing of Christ is they're not one of his. They've never bowed their knee to his lordship and when he comes, they're going to be one of the ones that are judged. Friends, if that's you today, that's a frightful situation to be in. I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Don't wait till the new year. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Forsake your sinful past. Admit it, confess to it, own up to it. Tell the Lord that his assessment of you is absolutely correct and come to him on his terms with empty hands and outturned pockets and call upon him in his grace. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. If you'll do that, the promise of Scripture is he'll hear your prayer, he'll save you, he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and you can enter 2020 loving the prospects of the Lord's appearing, not dreading it. Call upon you today to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that you don't leave us without warning. You're kind and gentle and long-suffering. In fact, the reason you have delayed your coming over 2,000 years is for those very reasons. It's not your will that any should perish. And so you give us opportunity after opportunity, warning after warning. But Lord, we know one day that window of opportunity will shut tight and the day of grace will be over and it will be a time of judgment and wrath. Lord, we fear for many millions in our own country who don't know Jesus. So Father, may that motivate us to to be more evangelistic, more zealous for missions in the year ahead. Give us a sense of urgency, Father, that the time is short, the day's near, even in our our own conversations with our family and friends. Father, I, I would pray if there are Christians here today that are in habitual sin, their life is in disarray. Father, that you would call them to confess that and to submit to you afresh and to start serving you again. Father, I pray if there's a lost soul here today that your spirit would take these words that have been spoken today and convict them of sin and your righteousness and the judgment to come. Father, grant them faith and repentance and faith. Father, save a lost soul. We pray not for our sake, but for your glory so that all here with the Apostle Paul could rejoice at the prospects of your second coming. We pray these things in and for the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.